0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to all of you, including those of you following our event on live stream. My name is Susanna Kaluzza. I am the CEO here at the House of Literature, and it is my great honor to welcome you to tonight's conversation with Brett Easton Ellis. I could say that Ellis needs no introduction because titles such as Less Than Zero, American Psycho, and The Rules of Attraction have become modern classics, and several have been turned into equally classic movies. Since his 1985 debut, Ellis has been one of literature's most prominent narrators of the postmodern condition, of late capitalism, money and celebrity culture, of violence and the dark corners of the human mind. Over the years, he has expanded also into screenwriting and directing. Still, Ellis keeps surprising us. One day in September 2020, he started telling a story in his podcast about the young Brett Ellis and the dark senior years of high school that changed everything. This story turned out to be The Shards, published this January and now also available in Hengning Kolstad's Skillful Translation. With the story set in 1980s LA, Ellis summons his position as a preeminent chronicler of the 80s as a turning point in youth culture. I don't think we would have seen successes such as Stranger Things without Ellis. For those of us who have read Ellis over the years, we know that he's a writer who likes to provoke, and that goes for the shards too. The book is passed off as a memoir based on Alice's own experiences, much like the earlier Luna Park. So, what is the truth, and what is fiction? Or maybe the more interesting question, what sparked this book that he first began 40 years ago? Joining Alice on stage, I am especially glad to have Emma Claire Gabrielsen, she has a varied and impressive experience as a feature writer in publications such as Not the Dog, Dagens Dog Næringsliv, and the Norwegian broadcasting company NRK. Her documentary on pedophiles earned her nominations both for Norway's Premier Journalist Prize and as European Journalist of the Year. Please help me give them both a warm welcome.
1: All right.
2: All right. Yes.
1: So. Uh, great to be here.
2: <laughs> yeah. Gl- very glad you came. Thank you. So this Thank is the you. last stop before you going home.
1: Well, it's the first stop of uh, a uh, kind of elongated European tour uh, that began this uh, past couple of weeks. And because of how the book has been published throughout the world, it's been staggered. So this is the end of the first leg, which was New York, Amsterdam. London and now Oslo. And then there will be um, other places uh, in the upcoming months.
2: Yeah. Okay. to the book, The Shards, it's been a lot of talk about this being your first novel in 13 years.
1: Yes, it has been. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Too bad, it's too bad. I should have written other novels. Yeah. (laughs) But I wasn't feeling it, so...
2: Yeah, and as uh, Susanne just mentioned in the introduction, you started trying to write this story forty ish years ago
1: I did I started writing it in the time that it set, yeah. I started writing it in one thousand nine hundred and eighty one when I was 17. when I was actually when I was eighteen, and a series of events had happened to me uh, that were really that created the bridge between adolescence and adulthood and becoming uh, you know a man from a boy and so I wanted to write about these kind of terrible things that had happened. Uh, But I wasn't mature enough yet as a writer. Uh, I was also working at the time on Less Than Zero, which I had begun when I was 16. Mm -hmm. So I was working on Less Than Zero when the events of the Shards uh, kind of happened. And I put Less Than Zero aside for a while and thought, okay, I'm going to write this book. But it's really complicated. It's really big. There's a lot of narrative going on. And I thought as an 18-year-old, I could write the vibe novel, you know? Less Than Zero was kind of a vibey novel. There wasn't a lot of narrative. I could write that hangout book, I like to call them, where you just hang out with a book and you go from party to party to nightclub to the beach to someone's house. And, you know, I I could do that book Mm. for 190, 200 pages, but I knew that the shards, needed a lot of time to uh, um, kind of uh, announce itself and to uh, give the reader the things that I guess the reader needs to hang on to in a novel. So it really was, I kept trying uh, decade after decade after decade to try to write this book. And uh, finally, for some reason, it happened in um, April of 2020 during lockdown.
2: Yeah, I thank you the call- COVID. I hate
1: to uh, call us a COVID novel, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I hate that idea, but it is true. That is when the Shards came back to me because 2020 and 2021 were such terrible years. Terrible, terrible years. And I think I was beginning to become very nostalgic mm. for 1981 instead of 2021. I wanted to live in 1981 now and not in 2021. And so this wave of nostalgia hit and I remembered this book and I, the last time I tried writing it was, I really think it was in 2006 or 2013. And um, it just started coming back to me because there was nothing left to do. All of the projects that I was working on in Hollywood had died, were killed because no one was w- working anymore. I had no more guests for my podcast. I have a podcast, the Brady Sinelis podcast and guests weren't coming over to the studio to do anything. So, you know, um, uh, the wine was opened earlier every night. Yeah, yeah. And I did something that I never really do, which is I am—I went on social media. You I never really th- do that. I really don't do it. No, all of my accounts, my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter, are all done by other people.
2: Oh. I, I don't
1: do that. I, just so okay. everyone knows. If you, <laughs> you don't get a DM from me or whatever. It's not... It's not but, um, but I, I, lo- I was looking for these classmates. Yeah. I was looking for them. And I was looking for three or four in particular that I had not spoke to in 40 years. And I had a, such a longing to talk to them. And I really, I guess I realized as an older man in, at 56, 57, now I'm 58, that I really loved them. You know, and I really hated the things that happened to us, and a lot of which I caused. Uh, I was uh, I was a very young writer, and I was an embellisher, and I was a f- well, a fabulous, a liar, basically a liar, and I made up a lot of stuff, and I was kind of hiding my true self because I was dating one of the most popular girls in school, but I was gay. I was having uh, a fling with a closeted athlete, whatever that was about. I, I, I thought a teacher was having an affair with a, a girl who was in our class. That wasn't happening. I thought one of my best friends was actually having sex with an older man in order to uh, supplement his whatever, his surfboard, his stereo equipment, whatever, because his father had cut him off. And I was wondering, how did Dominic get that? And why is he hanging out with these older men? Which really then did become the basis for the Julian character in Less Than Zero mm. and that whole thing. None of that was true. It's Not if it was It's all in your head. So I was all, it was all in my head. Yeah. And as, as the Brett in this book says, you hear things that aren't there and you see things yeah. that aren't there. And that's what a writer does. But a writer has to control that superpower, whatever, if you want to call it a superpower. The origin story about so many Marvel movies and Harry Potter and whatever, <laughs> you have to control that superpower. And that was the year that I f- realized I had to control the fact that I am a writer and I do write fiction. But that does not mean that I create a world and I use friends mm. and I use people and I make up stories about them that is in real life. And so um, that's really what the genesis of the Charles was in 1982. And, but the longing to write it and the key to unlock it in 2020 was that I realized, oh, an old man writes this book a man looking back at that time. Because all the times I tried writing the Shards, I said it in 1981 and it is actually narrated by the 18 year old uh, Brett character. And so, um, and it just never was working. But I realized with 40 years of hindsight, I could write an historical novel about LA in 1981. I could write about all the places that we went to that are now gone. Uh, that was also another pang of nostalgia that hit me when I was going on the internet and looking up all the theaters and the coffee shops and the movie theaters and the nightclubs we hung out in that are all gone now. That was another uh, urge, another impetus to begin to write this book. And so, if you had asked me four days earlier, in early April of 2020, "Will you finally write the shards?" I would have said, "No. What are you talking about?" couple nights in front of my computer, looking up where Ryan Vaughn or Susan Reynolds or whoever, where they were and not being able to find them. That was powerful, really powerful. Mm. And I have to feel a book to write one. I have to feel one. I'm not a career writer. I write as a hobby in a way. And so I don't take advances if I don't have a book and I have to feel a novel and I finally, after 40 years, was feeling this one. Um, maybe I'm shallow, but uh, while reading the novel, I didn't really,
2: or I didn't immediately see why you chose the title The Shards.
1: It was always the title. That was the title in 1982.
2: Yeah, why? Is it, what, why?
1: Well, um, I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything for a lot of people here. Well, um, how
2: many have read the book? Yeah, yeah well... Well, <laughs>
1: no, well not, not enough to talk <laughs> <Yeah>. about it. <one. laughs> So we can't Um, talk about the book. uh, The shards, I mean, God, I mean, this this is an essay question in a a college. uh, Yeah, sorry about that. It's the broken pieces of something that can't be put back together. They're like the shards of of broken glass or a broken plate. And there is a lot of broken glass imagery in the shards, for those who have read it, a lot near the end uh, that actually actualize the metaphor uh, in three or four major scenes. But it was really about that idea of breaking something and they're very sharp and they're painful and you really can't put this thing back together. And that's what I was thinking about with the title. Mm. And the title never changed. Some things changed over the 40 years, but uh, that title's always sort of haunted me. Mm.
2: Uh, in the event description for tonight, it says that for readers of Brett Easton Ellis' earlier. Earlier books, The Shards has a familiar atmosphere and he doesn't shy away from explicit descriptions of sex or violence. So, apart from the fact that it was serialized, or the story was serialized on your podcast first, what do you think particularly distinguishes The Shards from your other novels?
1: Well, look, I. I, th- I distinguish every novel from the other novel. I don't look at all the novels at the same at all. I'm in a completely different place when I write these novels. I was in a very different place when I wrote Less than Zero than when I wrote Glamorama or Lunar Park or Imperial Bedrooms. I'm always at a different place in my life. And I'm usually going through something painful, something confusing. I can't figure out why I'm trapped in this moment or why this is happening to me. And writing has always been a way for me to figure it out, to kind of find a path and to kind of answer the questions as to why I'm in pain. That's how it's worked for me. That's why I started writing Less Than Zero as a teenager. So every book is very different to me. I know there's a Bret Easton Ellis kind of vibe, a kind of style that people, it's become kind of a brand. People yeah. use as a brand. But um, so I see. But I, as Bratty and Ellis, and not really thinking of myself in that way, and not writing the book for my publisher or my agent or for the audience, I see them all very different. So this yeah. book is different. And I think uh, there's been a lot of there was a lot of issue about this book in the U.S. A lot of a lot whatever controversy about the amount of sex in it. And well, this th- book. This book, yes. Yeah. I got taken to task uh, on a, a lot of places that uh, w- there's way too much sex. And there's, also, there's a lot of heterosexual sex and there's a lot of gay sex and it's underage sex. And we're in a very purient moment, purient moment in, in, in now. And I think I, a, a novel about a 17 year old boy is going to have endless masturbation scenes. It's going, yeah. to, it's going to detail his sexual fantasies. And if he's lucky enough as he is to screw some hot young people, and that's what your life is, hopefully, at 17. He's a very lucky boy. He was lucky, and he was not so lucky. Yeah. (laughs) But he ended up, I guess, you know, sort of luckier than I would have presupposed. I don't know. Mm. But in that year, he had really set up a trap for himself, and he had really put into play a series of things that ended up being, it is a novel, so when I say tragic uh, and deadly, I'm referring to the novel, but it is a metaphor for where I was Mm. and I lost friends and it was my fault. So I always wanted to write this story and I always wanted to finally figure out a way to do it. and, uh, And I think it had to do with age. Mm. It had to do with making myself vulnerable in a way and not hiding behind a certain kind of style mm. because I think this is my most straightforward, uh, emotionally direct book uh, in a way that I didn't want to write that way at 19 when I wrote Lesson Zero. That was not what I was interested in. I was interested in perfecting a kind of numb mm. prose that... Uh, that elicited a feeling of numbness because I thought that was really interesting. Just just as much as I found it was interesting, how do you put insanity on the page when you're dealing with someone like Patrick Bateman? Mm. And what do you do with prose to evoke that kind of feeling? And so I never really saw myself as numb, but I felt interested in the aesthetic of numbness and how it can be applied to books.
2: Yeah, because the, the tone of, <clears throat> for example, Lesson Zero is much more detached than than Completely, this one. I mean, totally. it's so. This feels so much more sincere and nostalgic was. and sentimental in in that way. Yeah, I am. you're old. I'm so. old. I
1: couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't have. I, I would never yeah. have written Lesson Zero now. No. You know, it, w- that was a book by a very young man. And I, as much as I cannot open Lesson Zero, and I go crazy whenever I see if I the last I don't even know the last time I did. I didn't even read it before looking at this because there is a connection in, in many ways between Lesson Zero and the shards. The events less, the of Lesson Zero take place after the shards, but you know I also think that if if I knew that Lesson Zero was going to be as well received, not well received, but as uh, popular and, mm. and as many people were going to um, uh, purchase it and read it, I would have written it a lot better and it would, <laughs> and it would have been a lot worse. Yeah. It would have been worse. And some of my, uh, my, try, my stabs at Lesson Zero were, I did try to make it more Joan Didion-esque and I did yeah. try to give it, but it didn't work because I wanted to capture this flat effectless feeling of a teenager in Los Angeles in a certain moment. And so I, I created that voice for him, mm. and that was really, really interesting to me. That is not interesting to me now. Less Than Zero is an artifact from uh, you know, uh, a, an age long ago. I'm very glad I wrote it. I'm proud, I don't know, whatever, the book, I, I, I like it. But it is very far away from my life as to where I am now, just as Glamorama is, mm. just as American Psycho is. I would never write American Psycho now, but I was feeling it then.
2: Aren't you still kind of haunted by Patrick Bateman and American Zero? I saw he's become this poster boy for the Sigma males on TikTok. That toxic masculinity. For Gen Z. Yeah.
1: Okay, Sigma male, Gen Z, TikTok, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about. My boyfriend does, he's 36, he he watches TikTok and he shows me these Patrick Bateman things. I read an article in British GQ he showed me two weeks ago. Why is Patrick Bateman the poster boy for memes for Gen Z or something? And there's all of these, uh, whatever you wanna call them, GIFs, GIFs, memes, whatever they are. And um, yeah, for some reason, this character has become, um, uh, what do you call it, memeable. He's very memeable, yeah. Memeable. Yeah. But it really has not a lot to do with me. I think it has a lot to do with the movie. It has a lot to do with Christian Bale. Yeah. And so I think, uh, but it does have to do with the character because Patrick Bateman kind of embodies, I guess... Uh, this sort of like uh, masculine outside persona, quite good looking and handsome, but inside he's completely falling apart and feeling like shit. Mm. And I think maybe there are some people who identify with that. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe. You're asking the wrong person in terms of why this has happened. I have no idea.
2: (laughs) I heard you on a radio interview of you a couple of days ago saying that if a woman wrote American Psycho, a publisher might have published it as a daring feminist statement about... toxic masculinity.
1: Ooh, interesting.
2: Yeah. Do you care to Do, elaborate? Would, would
1: I, the, I did throw that out there. Yeah, Is that, you did. Would, would, could a woman write that novel and be hailed and have it be hailed as a masterpiece by getting to the head of that, this man and writing about violence against women in such a way and about misogyny and about all of the stuff that American Psycho was about, um, I don't know. It's a very good question, and because I mean, I well, I was kind of put into a position to ask it, and so okay. but and I I don't know. I mean, it is pretty out there, but I would, I do wonder. What do you think? Do you think a woman could publish that book now or not?
2: Uh, no comment. I'm I'm the one asking questions tonight. I don't think I'm gonna. Into it. I have many questions I want to ask you, yeah. so I'd, I'd rather not waste uh, people's time. <clears throat> okay, in the opening lines of The Shards, uh, like we've already talked about, Bre- Brett, the character, is a budding writer working on his debut novel, Less Than Zero. And the narrator equates writing a novel to falling in love with someone. Both are said to be a dangerous game where someone will get hurt. Nice. What feels dangerous or bold, risky, daring to you these days in (coughs) contemporary literature?
1: Uh, Nothing, (laughs) nothing, nothing at all. And I don't read contemporary, I I, uh, read, um, I do try to keep up, you know, so I'm not, I am, I thought I was a much bigger reader than I actually am and I keep a list now of the books that I read. And I thought that I read far more novels let me clarify that, finished far more novels than, yeah. than I actually do. And my list for, um, for 2022 is only like, I finished 55 books. Now I used to, when I was much younger, I could read 250 to 350 books in a year. I could read a book and a half in a day. I was so voracious, I was such a voracious reader. And now, I think I'm, I, I am now in a stage in my life where I think 19th century authors are the rock stars. My favorite reading experiences lately have been The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot, Lost Illusions by Balzac. They're the rock stars. They know the form. Dickens, I'm rereading Great Expectations. Um, and it is, uh, it is hard for me to get really caught up in contemporary fiction. And I wonder why. I don't know if it's because it just doesn't play such a central part in the culture anymore in the way it did when I was growing up. Mm. Or if it's just that I'm older, and I, and I do notice that half of the books I finished now are nonfiction. And that fiction really has to have something about it that grabs me in a way that it didn't really need to have when I was younger. And I read just every like uh, hyped novel or well-reviewed novel, and I was perfectly happy to do so
2: but you also said on your podcast recently that growing up you were looking to be offended and that you wanted offensive art books music imagery and that you all sort of craved it it was part of being and becoming an adult and figuring out things and I'm curious when yeah when was the last time you were sort of confronted and pushed by art, and, or a novel especially?
1: Well, change is what you want. The things you want at 1920 aren't the things you want at 58. No. They're very different. And I think what you're referring to is a, a Gen X sensibility. Uh, I was talking about this, on, I think I did talk about this on my podcast with Quentin Tarantino, who also feels the way we want to be challenged by art. Art was a door you opened, not a mirror you looked into, which is what it is now. And that is something that was very, very different about growing up where you wanted to be in someone else's shoes, you wanted to be shocked, you wanted to be offended, you wanted to be blown away and challenged by art. That has disappeared completely. Artists are afraid to do that on a certain level that is different from Gen X. So I think that's what I've been talking about. We weren't offended by anything. Nothing offended or triggered us. That's, it seems like a joke to me and to my generation. And you know, everything was permissible. You were allowed to say whatever you wanted. There was no such thing as quote unquote hate speech. It was a, a much freer society that seemed far, far less racist and far less sexist than whatever is going on now in terms of this push toward ideology over aesthetics. Ideology over aesthetics. And I think that's what I was referring to. To be challenged, to not to be offended by a work of art, but to feel challenged by it. And And to see that work of art as a window that you went through and not a mirror. And I think a lot of people now want a mirror to look into. Why is
2: that, do you think?
1: I don't know, I have no idea, but I think it's about just this notion that art needs to be relatable that horrible word that comes up all the time—it's not relatable enough. The characters aren't likable enough. Uh, you, there are there are sensitivity readers in publishing houses. You must know this, who all who, who edit things that that they are afraid will offend or trigger people. There, I heard this horrible story about a middle-aged woman wrote a book about two middle-aged women who are having problems in their marriage, and they decide to go to a Chinese restaurant to talk about their problems. In the scene. And one of them made an MSG joke that, well, maybe we shouldn't go there, there's MS, MSG. What's an
2: MSG joke? What? What's an MSG joke?
1: The MSG is that maybe we shouldn't go there because there's MSG in the food. And maybe we have a problem with MSG and someone flat that is racist. You can't say that. So they made the writer take the scene out of the Chinese coffee, uh, Chinese restaurant, remove the line, and put it into like a coffee shop. I think that's a problem. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Do you think Sensitivity readers. Do you think there are any Asian people here who would be offended by that? I don't. I think this is a thing that has happened. And I don't know where how this has exploded into the culture and into the arts. But it is something to be very wary of. And to um, we should all keep an eye on it.
2: Yeah. Would you think that truly transgressive literature still exists at all? No, I don't.
1: I, I mean... And look, what
2: would... Sorry, can I... Yeah. What would be considered transgressive today? Is it...
1: Well, Michel Welbeck is considered transgressive transgressive in France. And I think he's the greatest living European writer. And he is very authentic, he's very funny, he's not afraid to voice his opinion, which a lot of people are. A lot of writers are, and he is just... You know, he doesn't care if he's popular or not. He doesn't care if he's liked or not. And if he feels this way or that way, He writes about it, and that's all you can ask for an author is authenticity, is total authenticity. You have to agree with him. You don't have to like his slant on things, but authenticity is really what makes an artist, I think, to be fearless. And Mm -hmm. I think that Michel Welbeck is a fearless writer. I I think the later books have been not up to par with his three or four masterpieces that he created in the the early 80s, but um, he's someone who does manage to shock and offend a lot of people in Europe, but he also sells a gazillion books. So there is some hope for, for people like that. But people like that that when transgressive fiction first sort of reared its head in the US, and I got labeled like that uh, for American Psycho, you know, there were writers uh, and books like A.M. Holmes, The End of Alice. Uh, Dennis Cooper certainly had a moment in the US where his books were being published by a mainstream publisher that's over, that's not happening anymore. Um, It doesn't mean you can't get your books published. I think there are places that can and I think there will always be some kind of audience that wants the taboo and wants, you know, like a a movie executive told me, R-rated movies are never gonna go away, horror movies are never gonna go away, gore is never gonna go away, there's always gonna be an audience somewhere for that, for the taboo. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like that entering in or even touching the mainstream, like, I don't know, like a Blue Velvet, or even a Pulp f- Fiction now, I don't know if that's possible. And I don't know if enough readers are out there who care about books enough to, you know, cause a storm o- over a, a novel. Uh, I don't know.
2: But Dennis Cooper was actually asked this, <coughs> this question about truly transgressive literature today. Is, is it, is it, does it still exist? And he was like, yeah. There, re- there are still a few writers, I mean, we, yeah, just quickly, so everyone's... Uh, can you just explain who Dennis Cooper is?
1: Dennis Cooper was a... Uh, is, is... still living. Yeah. uh He wrote a series of novels uh, that really dealt with some hardcore themes. They dealt with... Um, um, uh, a lot of it was uh, homosexuality, serial killers... Uh, torture, uh, willing torture, young boys wanting to be tortured and killed. And he went into kind of hardcore detail about serial killers, gay life. This was not, this was a very, very negative kind of look at gay life by a gay writer. And he kind of tapped into this unconscious, dangerous, uh, uh, unspoken feelings about, Certain things about gay life, and that's who Dennis Cooper was. And he had, a, he had five novels that were about, that revolved around the murder of a boy, uh, the death of a boy named George Miles, and that became kind of the narrator's obsession in these five key novels and what happened to George Miles. And that's who Dennis Cooper is.
2: And he, he, you're quite like a, your books are like Disney princesses compared, compared to him. I mean, totally. I mean, yeah. his, his are
1: <laughs> truly shocking. Yeah. But also, beautifully written. And that's the difference. Uh, beautifully written books of extreme horror and torture that takes, uh, you have to steal yourself. And I've, I've rarely come across books like that. Some, some of those books work better than others, but he has a vision. you know. He has a vision of the world and it's a like compelling vision.
2: Why, why are you interested in exploring the darkness and taboo? You think?
1: I don't know if it is because I grew up where I grew up. I'm of a certain generation. I do think that my preoccupation with, for example, uh, serial killers, and especially in this book, cults had to do with growing up in California in the 70s and the 80s of my childhood and adolescence. Uh, California was the red hot center for serial killers in the United States during that time. And it was just the wallpaper of our lives. We read about them every night, uh, heard about them every night on the news. Uh, During the time I was uh, in high school, the Hillside stranglers were like all over the place. And we found out it wasn't just one serial killer. It was two serial killers picking up girls, torturing them, recording them being tortured, and then murdering them and then dumping them off freeways. That was a normal news night. You heard that a lot. And then being a gay guy, I did follow gay serial killers that really weren't getting the kind of prominence in mainstream media because mainstream media didn't really care about gay people being murdered that way. And so uh, it w- it, w- it haunted me. It was impactful. I was frightened a lot by that. So I do think that has a lot to do with why there is that uh, that thread that runs through the books.
2: Mm. And in, in The Shards, the serial killer is nicknamed the Trawler. Can you tell us about... Uh
1: I was thinking, well, first of all, I was thinking about when I was writing the book, yes, there were serial killers all over the place, you know, and so if I was going to write this novel and I was going to set it in 1982, when I was 18, I had created this character, the serial killer, the trawler, who is the Brett character believes somehow tied to their group of friends at Buckley. A new kid comes to Buckley named Robert Mallory. Brett feels that he is so handsome, so magnetic, he is going to completely break up this group that Brett has so desperately strived to be a part of. He's become the tangible participant. He's dating a girl. He's trying to look as good as possible. He's finally in the in crowd and he sees this character come in who's just gonna blow it all up, who's gonna steal the prom queen from the quarterback, who's going to cause intense lust in Brett and distract Brett from all of his things. And so Brett begins to connect the serial killer, the trawler, with Robert Mallory, and that really is kind of the engine of the book. There is a timeline that suggests it could be possible, or or is Brett really trying to push this timeline? The other thing about the trawler that interested me when I was working on the Shars, initially, my 17, 18-year-old self, was the notion of that I had re- was reading so much about serial killers, I began to see that they had narratives and that they were kind of writers in a way. Why did they choose th- this particular victim? Why did they wait three weeks? Why did they do that to their body? Why did they suddenly disappear? Why did they send letters to the LAPD and the Los Angeles Times asking them, Why haven't you found my work Mm. in a drain pipe in Simi Valley? She's been there for, you know, and it was sort of like, it was so haunting to me to make that connection between being this writer who was kind of out of control at 17 with a much darker metaphor of the trawler being also a kind of mirror image of Brett. In terms of, I mean, it certainly Brett wasn't a serial killer, or whatever. Uh, though he does commit some crimes in this novel. Yeah, what,
2: what did he, he do? Why? Crimes. Can you tell us he why he's called the the trawler? What's the, the well? Nickname? The trawler
1: was a name. It was a nickname that came out of the LAPD that involved. There, one of the victims was found elaborately tortured, and her aquarium in her bedroom because the trawler. Uh, Uh, staked out its victims for two weeks or so, stole their pets, came to their house, rearranged their rooms, uh, left them posters for uh, music acts for bands, and then did, as you'll find out at the end of the book, horrendous things to their bodies. He was an Something. artist in a way. He, was, he called the things he did to the bodies the remakings, the assemblages. The trawler saw himself as an artist. And so the, the trawler got this nickname because two guys in the LAPD in Hollywood, one of the girls had her aquarium had disappeared three days before she was um, uh, abducted and it ultimately was found, was found sewn into her. They were into sewn, the fish was sewn into her vagina. Yeah. And so these two cops at the LAPD started making these jokes about fish, a fishing boat, a trawler, and they called them that, One and, thing it the and it wasn't. Yeah. The, the file went out to the press that, and it wasn't redacted in two places, and so the trawler became the name of this nascent serial killer that's haunting the San Fernando Valley.
2: Why do you think that so many of us are so interested in reading about these torture, serial killers, murders, violence?
1: I don't know. I know know that I just like a good book. Yeah. I just like a good book. And if it has it in it, then it's good. There are plenty of books that have this in it that aren't good that I don't want to read. So it really is... Look, I think one of the most terrifying things that I've read lately is the climactic chapter of The Mill and the Floss by George Eliot. This storm hits this village. Uh, And it is so terrifyingly described what happens to this brother and sister that that bothered me more than anything I saw in a horror movie last year, you know? So it really depends. And I also think a little bit has to do with getting older and what affects you as at 58 affects me more deeply and less deeply on a certain level than what affected me at 18 or 19 or 20. I am a little bit more squeamish about violence now when I watch it in a movie, for example. And I, am, uh, I, I wince a little bit more and I'm worried about other things. And I think as you get older, it becomes, you know, uh, aging parents become a big concern. And my boyfriend has addic- was in rehab and has addiction issues. And that has become a part of the conversation of our life. And then there is, you know, uh, I'm having massive plumbing problems in my apartment. And the guest bathroom, my bathroom, and the kitchen need to be redone. And we replaced the pipes, and they weren't the right pipes. And then the pipes we replaced them with didn't fit in with the nozzle, whatever. It wasn't, it's on this tour. When I wake up in the morning, it is not about the shards, it is not about anything, it's it's basically uh, texting my boyfriend and and asking, did B&B plumbing call, and are they coming over at noon, and is the building manager going to be up there in order to help um, plaster over the exposed pipe in the guest bathroom? (laughs) That's what I'm concerned about. Struggles of everyday life at 58. The struggles of everyday life at a certain point, and, you know, and, and friends dropping, You know, you're getting to that age where, you know, people... So, you know, look, this was so fun to write. It was bliss to write. I love writing novels. I'm the happiest when I have a novel going. And so that does take me out of the pain of the everyday.
2: You've gotten quite a few good reviews, uh or mixed reviews, mixed but you're reviews. used to that, but yeah, uh, reviews, so. quite a few good ones too, like the one, the very blurb-worthy one from The Observer, that said that The Shards is an inspired 1980s fever dream of a book. It reads like a Karl-Ove a novel spliced with a Dario Argento movie, as vital as anything Ellis has ever written, and it's the one all the other Bret Easton Ellis novels are about. What do you think of the Knausgård comparison? Speaking of the everyday struggles, I you know, mean, you mean plumbing. Think,
1: thinking about what this guy said about my book? Yeah. Well, uh, the, you
2: know, Knausgård, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know what you thought about the Knausgård, the, the Norwegian who wrote My, struggle. my Struggles.
1: My Struggles, yeah. yes, oh, of course, I'm going to be outside in Norway.
2: Yes. <laughs> Trying to make it relatable. <laughs> I did remember you post <coughs> on Instagram. Yeah, uh, or maybe reading this. it. I
1: was reading it. right? I know
2: you posted a picture from 2015. Uh, you uh, p- took a picture of the sh- my struggle by Carlo Wojnowski, with pill bottles next to it, and I thought that was very on-brand for those, the those Prince of Darkness literary persona. <laughs> It was yeah. Those
1: were, that was I think a bottle of Ativan, which is a stress reliever thing, yeah. in, in the, and maybe yeah, it, it wasn't a, anything. Uh, major, It yeah. wasn't opiates or whatever. Okay, yeah. Uh, yes, I read the first three, <laughs> and I really was compelled by them. Uh, I should have prepared an answer for Nasgard. Uh, I, yeah, I forgot about that. Okay. So the first three, and I did. I I, I was very compelled yeah. by them, and I really liked them. And then for some reason, I don't know why. When I got to volume four, I felt like, okay, I get it already, and I <laughs> don't know how much more. I know a lot about Carl Narsgård now, and I like him. I like the guy, yeah. and, but I don't know if I need to read four, five, or six. And, but, however, three people, and it takes three people to recommend a novel, novel for me before I purchase it, did tell me that the latest novel was really good, and I do have that on my nightstand, and I haven't started yet. I think it's The, the Morning, Morning Star yeah. or something. So I have that um, and then I, met, I mentioned that here I think to someone and they said, oh, it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. But, um, yeah. but I love the idea of what Carl Nosgaard was doing and I think that's, you know, um, I, don't think it, I don't think it affected me in terms of what I was doing in terms of using, well, no, they were totally Well, you did write about
2: your struggle in a way. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. maybe no, no, inspire no, you're right,
1: you're right, yeah. you're right. And he's a good writer. I yeah. like the way he writes, yeah. Uh,
2: speaking of Norwegian artists, a little bird told me you watched the Norwegian film Sick of Myself in your hotel room this weekend.
1: How in the hell did you know that?
2: How in the hell I'm a
1: very, did you know that? I'm a very, oh well-connected
2: right. woman. I a know all the maids <laughs> in all the hotels. No, we can talk about it afterwards, but... Um. Uh, uh, uh. This I only I texted one or two people. I know people. That's what No, I can say.
1: no, no. You don't know the director, do you?
2: Yeah. Okay, so I love this
1: movie. It's comes yeah. out in, it comes out in theaters in the US in April. Has it been playing yes, here? it
2: has been playing here, yeah. I loved
1: it. I thought it was hilarious, horrifying. Yeah. It caught the moment we're in so well. Yeah. I wrote an email to the filmmaker. <laughs> And because he had sent it to me on a link, on a Vimeo link. And I thought, well, God, I've got two hours of nothing to do in the hotel. <laughs> I d- How good could this be? Because I had met him once before when he was trailing around a writer who was on my podcast. David Shields. Ri- David Shields. And he was just this kid. It seemed it was like following David Shields around. And I thought, and then I thought this, this schlub is sending me his movie. <laughs> and I thought I got a couple, I got two hours to kill. And I <laughs> loved it. What did you love about it? I love that it caught this moment yeah. of, it just caught this moment about, the, 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 well, a criticism of the desire to exhibit oneself and to get follows and to be liked, to be liked, to be liked. Um, I sent the link to my boyfriend in LA, He's 36, and he, about 20 minutes after, into it, he said, did you send this because you think it's about me? <laughs> <laughs> did you send this because yeah. you think I'm that girl? And, uh, but, he di- but he did relate to that girl. And so, I so can you to, say to what,
2: So what happens to the girl? She...
1: The girl wants attention. Her boyfriend's a famous artist here in yeah. Oslo. He's a kind of pretentious or whatever. She really d- feels left alone. She goes to parties with him. Uh, she feels ignored. So she kind of, like, makes up stuff. She pretends she has a nut allergy at a very fancy party given for her boyfriend and causes a scene which interrupts his moment, okay? That's kind of where she is. And then she finds out that there's this Russian drug that 's being recalled called Lexapol or whatever that if taken too much, it starts to deform you and you get these, your parts of your body get covered in scars and scar tissue and stuff and she decides to buy a ton of it off an ex boyfriend or something who, who can get this illegal drug for her, and she just takes a ton of it and she becomes like uh, like i don 't know if anyone ever saw. Uh, the Fly with Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> her skin begins to model off and her, I mean, whatever. It's hilarious and ghastly and I loved it. Uh, up there with um, your other good Norwegian filmmakers.
2: Yeah, because last, last uh, or in January, had this like best of your favourite films from uh, 2022. Uh, twi- yeah, I did. And then, uh, our Hello, Norwegian Eskil Fugt, the director of The Innocents. Yes. The, the, Ushild, yeah?
1: the Innocents made my top 12. Yeah. And he is the co writer of the Oslo trilogy with Joachim Trier. Which is one of my favorite. I mean, I, Reprise is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. As is um, uh, Oslo,
2: 31st uh, uh, of August. Right.
1: Which I watch again because after we saw The Worst Person in the World, Todd had not seen the first two movies. Todd I is your. Boyfriend yeah. of 13 years and, I, and he hadn't seen the first two and I loved the first two movies. I loved Reprise and I loved Oslo, uh, August 31, Oslo, August yeah. 31. And, but I always liked Reprise more, but then when we watched uh, the August, uh, Oslo 31 or whatever um, uh, uh, during the pandemic, I, I said, you know, this isn't as good as Reprise. No, I think it's the masterpiece. Yeah. I think it might be the masterpiece. It was devastating and it was absolutely brilliant. And so anyway, I was curious about The Innocents, which didn't get like any rollout at all in the United States. And I thought it was so compelling and commercial. I, I really am waiting for a studio to you know, an American studio to do the Americanized version of it. But the problem is that the kids are very cruel to themselves and I think for an American audience they're going to really have to clean it up until it means nothing. So yeah. you, can't, you, can't do, you can't do that remake of The Innocents but it was an extremely effective movie.
2: It was, so very, yeah, it was very funny because you said, uh, he said on the podcast, who wants to see a movie about children killing each other, one might ask. Well I do. <laughs> Well, when it's as well-made and as engrossing as The Innocents. Yes,
1: yeah. that's what I said.
2: Yeah. You called it pristine. That it was pristine, uh, yeah. yeah.
1: And it was frightening. It frightened me.
2: What is it about Norwegian films?
1: Uh, oh, those are the only ones I like. Oh, yeah,
2: okay. So you haven't... It's not... It's not I a can't a name
1: another Norwegian filmmaker. <laughs> those are the only ones that I know.
2: What are you watching these days apart from... Uh, Apart from sick of myself. Well,
1: you know, uh, watching a lot of television, uh, because television has become more vital than movies, and so uh, we really try out everything. A lot of it is bad. There's an ocean of television out there. I talk to friends all the time who recommend shows to me with like big actors in them that I've never heard of. I have, I've never heard of this show. And that happens almost every day. You've got to watch this, you've got to watch this. And then that dreaded moment where they tell you, well, it gets really good at episode four. Yeah. I'm sort of like, well, how long? It's an hour long show. I've got to watch four hours for it to be good. I can't do that. But what I've liked recently, I actually met in London, uh, and this is, I guess, the perks of uh, being on a book tour. Uh, the creators of a TV BBC show called Industry uh, yeah. knew that I was coming into town, and this was this is run for two seasons on HBO in America, and I loved the show. Binge watched it with Todd, and uh, got to meet the creators of that, and that was kind of exciting. I liked the White Lotus. I don't know if that was popular here. Yeah, in very popular. Uh, season two was terrific. I thought it didn't start well. I thought, yeah. why are they doing White Lotus two? I thought it was like y- 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 you caught magic once. Kind of. But then it got better and better and better and better and, you know, still...
2: Can I say something? Yes. In Sweden, uh, there was this very heated debate recently about the relevance of literature that was sparked by this literary critic or culture editor admitting that he kept putting the boring contemporary novels down in order to be entertained by the White Lotus on HBO. I agree with
1: him completely. Yeah. I completely agree <laughs> with him. I completely, and, and, and the one thing, I mean, every morning, you know, Todd and I will say to each other, These gays, they're trying to yeah. murder me. These gays, you know, these gays, they're trying to murder me today. So that's, that, so if we got anything out of the White Lotus, we got that. And one of the best death scenes ever. So I, I think I got this. I think I got this. <laughs> Plump.
2: Um, so what What can a novel do that an HBO series can't? Uh,
1: what can a novel do? Well, What a novel can do is uh, engage you with its style, which I'm sure, look, okay, that's a movie and a TV show can. But what a novel allows you to do is enter into the consciousness of something. And that's something that eludes movies and eludes TV. It allows you to enter into a much deeper much uh, much more direct and intimate consciousness with the material, if it's good, mm. if it's really good. Uh, there's a d- bit of a divide when you're watching a TV show, you're watching a movie, than when you are intimately connected with a book. At least I feel that way with a really good book. I'm reading a book now Called Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. I yeah. think it's called. I came late to it. I started out thinking, "Oh God, I don't really like this book." And it was it was on Obama's list of the ten best books and I, whatever. And I'm not nice. feeling it. I'm not feeling it. And then something happens. There is a consciousness at work, and it is casting a spell on me and it is the prose, it's the poetry of it. That's not like watching a movie and that's not like watching a TV show. And there is an intimacy like I mentioned with The Mill on the Floss or with uh, Balzac's Lost Illusions that there is a joy to reading that is a completely different uh, ecstatic moment than watching a really good TV show or movie. It's just different. And it usually is for me and there are very—it's very rare to find those books. It's very, very—it's pretty easy to find compelling TV. You can find compelling TV, but to find that book to, that transports you into the consciousness of the author, melding it in with her story and with what's going on—that's that's really exciting to me. But you know, I'm old, and so maybe that's—I've been—that's—I I was trained to do that. You know, I mean, I was trained uh, to read books out there. So I don't know.
2: Speaking of excitement, uh, you just re- <laughs> you recently said in an interview with uh, your UK publisher that what continues to isp- inspire you is porn. Uh, in what way? <laughs> if I may ask.
1: <laughs> Look, this is not going to be interesting for the crowd. No. <laughs> I can talk about this, but it's not going to be interesting for the crowd. Yes.
2: Okay, l- okay let me ask another question. You were approached by Pornhub to write a porn for them, right? How do you know that?
1: How did you Yet find out about that? Nobody know knows made. that. I actually purposely did not say that, because I was about to get a big job somewhere with a conservative company, film company, and I didn't <laughs> want to do it. And no one knows about that. And I wish I had done it, because the deal fell through. And I did want to make a porn movie for Pornhub. It would be like 30 minutes and whatever. Um, uh, Okay, look, look. I'm just gonna tell you guys this. I am fascinated by the world of gay porn. The world of gay porn fascinates me and I read, there are People Magazine, Esquire Magazine, GQ Magazine type of uh, websites and stuff that, all, that aren't really about pornography, they're about the stars. So uh, Michael Delgatti is now the number one gay porn star in the world. I'm fascinated by his life. And he's also gay for pay, as are most of the top 10 most downloaded uh, gay porn stars are straight guys who do it because they make a lot more money on OnlyFans and stuff than they do if they did straight porn. Johnny Rapid is a great example of this. He is like one of the top 10. He always posts Instagram stuff with him and his girlfriend and his motorcycle collection and all of this stuff. And I am fascinated by this notion of working within this industry, doing that for a living, and the gossip about their lives, their contracts, how much uh, Brandon Cody is going to get for doing a bottoming scene. He's never done a bottoming scene before. Look, I know it's crazy. My boyfriend is repulsed by this, but I am fascinated by this world. And I was also really fascinated by, I think a lot of it was because I was fascinated by James Dean, who was a yeah. who was the number one heterosexual porn star in the world. He now owns all of his porn. He is now vastly wealthy because it's all under Jamesdean.com he accidentally- that he owns. And that you, if you want to watch James Dean, you have to pay that. And because he's the number one straight male porn star in 220 territories, he's become a very wealthy man. And half of the subscribers are women because he was hugely popular with women. So there you go. I don't know. Maybe we got into the wrong business. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. It's never too late. Oh, it is too late. It is too late. Uh, No, it's way too late. Uh, It's even too late for James Dean, who doesn't perform anymore. Already? Yeah. So anyway, but so the the whole porn stuff is. Yeah, I am interested in porn. I am interested in people who do this for a living, who make careers out of it, and especially the gay for pay element is interesting to me. That's all.
2: One last question. I see we have one more minute. Uh, What's the worst thing you've done for money?
1: I signed an NDA and I can't talk about it. I'm not joking. Let's go for the second worst then, where I didn't sign an NDA. Okay. Yes, please. Okay. The worst thing I've done for money. Yeah. Worst thing I've done for money. And that wasn't a bad thing either. That was a good gig and it just got screwed up. And I had signed an NDA and I can't talk about it. Um, you know what? I, I don't think I ever I ever had that moment. I don't think I ever had that moment where I was in a position where I had to do something for money and that I resented doing it and I hated doing it because I can't write like that. And that's all I do, write. I mean, I don't, I mean, if it was something, I, so, so I can't, I am not a good person to, to be given assignments to. Uh, everything that I've sold, all those wasted years in Hollywood where I was selling pilots and mini series and movies all the time, were things that I wanted to do that just never happened. So I don't know if I ever was in that position uh, where I actually took money to do something that was awful or didn't want to do. Good for you. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not bragging about it. I'm not complaining no, about. it. No, it. I wasn't just, being all right. Yeah. I, I, no, look. Yeah. Uh, look, I have friends who are uh, who have three kids in private schools and and an alimony and a mortgage who do have to do a lot of that stuff. I'm a single guy. I have a cheap millennial boyfriend, and uh, my life is not that extravagant at all. So I can kind of take a break from that and not do some of the things that my other friends do complain about because Hollywood is a horrible business and it's an awful place to work and everyone who works there knows it and nothing gets made and it's just you know you think you think growing up there that you knew it that you broke the code I thought I knew it and then people warned me when I moved back to LA in 2006 and I had sold a show to HBO and I had this movie, The Informer's Happening, which became this like $25 million India and everything. I thought, I know what I'm doing. And then of course, everything falls apart. So um, so to get back to your, uh, your question, uh, I haven't done it. I haven't done it yet.
2: What about American Psycho the musical?
1: Well, I was- No, no offense, but- No, no. I, I liked it the second act needs to be retooled I definitely I liked it um, I was the only that 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 show lost 14 million dollars oh. that show lost yeah. all of this money I was the only one who made money on it because they had to pay me the rights every week for the book because it wasn't based on the movie it was based on my book so they had to pay me every week that was my you know that was my payment and so I was the only person on that, <laughs> on that goddamn show who made any money off it, and, every, and, and it lost $14 million, which is, you know, 80% of shows on Broadway don't mm. recoup the cost, so. Mm. But, I, but I also didn't have anything creatively to do with American Psycho, the musical. I was just there, and I was there in New York, like, helping to promote it, because I, I wanted to keep being paid that weekly option.
2: Yeah, <laughs> good thinking. Who wouldn't? Okay. Uh, Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you, everyone, for coming.
1: Thanks for coming.
0: Thank you. You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website.